at this point, we're in a fight for our lives and we've been surviving for generations and we're tired of just surviving. We want to live and breathe. I'm tired of putting I can't breathe t-shirts on. Welcome back to the DWD podcast, a podcast focused on ending polarization through conversation. Of course, it's Joey here alongside my brother, Asher. And today we have Nupal Kiyazolu. She's the Black Lives Matters, Greater New York President, Mrs. Liberia, and a Teen Vogue 21 Under 21 member. Everybody, please give a warm welcome to Nupal. Nupal, thank you for hopping on the podcast. Hi, how are you guys? Doing really well. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. We're really excited for this conversation. Um, so just to, to kick things off, we first wanted to thank you, thank you for giving us some of your time today. I know the last two months have probably been crazy for you. There's been a ton of attention on the Black yeah. Lives Matter movement. Um, and I just wanted to first say thank you for all the work that you're doing. You've been doing this for almost close to a decade now, which is yeah. <laughs> incredible. Um, and so for those who don't already know, you could just give us a quick little introduction to yourself. Uh, and some of the things you've been doing over the last few months. Hey guys, so my name is Nupal Kiyazolu. I'm 20 years old. I'm the president of Black Lives Matter Greater New York, founder and CEO of my national campaign, Vote 2000, and Miss Liberia USA. Fantastic. Yeah, so obviously we're, we're going through some, some crazy times right now. I'm curious, on, on your end, how are you emotionally dealing with this situation given that we're going through probably three national crises right now um and and how are you handling all this i mean as of right now i like many black activists and organizers i'm exhausted Mm -hmm. uh this work is definitely mentally spiritually and physically taxing um but I haven't really had the time to process much. I've just been like a robot on the move. Um, So it's just, you know, every day going with the flow, whatever's on today's agenda, that's what I'm tackling. And I'm actually getting ready to uh, fly out to Kentucky to work with organizers on the ground um, for Breonna Taylor excuse me, for Brianna Taylor and um, BLM Louisville. And I'm also uh, doing a research project as well. So, Mm. yeah. That's a, I think that's an important note that most people really aren't talking about right now. So I'd love if you could talk to us a little bit about how you're, what type of coping mechanisms are you using in this time to make sure you don't burn yourself out in the process? Because, I mean, you've been doing this for a long time already. Yeah. The fight's going to yep. continue. I, I would hope it ends soon. But unfortunately, the reality of the situation seems to look like this fight's going to have to continue for our entire generation. Yeah. Um, I mean, coping mechanisms, just trying to take it day by day, time management, um, and really just trying. It's really hard for me to find like just periods of silence and just like tranquility. But I'm just like trying to create that space for me as much as possible to stay sane because there's so many things that hit me day to day. Like my schedule's so sporadic. So It's really just time management and creating those spaces of tranquility for me and like reminding myself not to feel guilty for doing something nice for myself. Definitely. Definitely. Uh, So I'm curious on how you got your start. What motivated you to get into the activism sphere, uh, particularly Black Lives Matter? 
Yeah, so I've been an activist and organizer since the age of 12 years old. So like you said, almost a decade now. I feel so old. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And Trayvon Martin's murder is what pushed me into activism. Um, Just a short synopsis of uh, my push into activism. Um, When Trayvon Martin was murdered, I was extremely angry. And at the time, I couldn't fully articulate how I felt about his murder, but I knew that I had to do something. So I came up with this idea to hold a silent protest at my school. And I went to my, I was in middle school at the time at Stone Mountain Middle School in Georgia. And I went to school the following day with a gray hoodie on and this message taped to my back stating, do I look suspicious? And I had Skittles and iced tea in my hand to represent the things Trayvon had in his hand at the time he was murdered. And of course, I was in the South in a predominantly white little school um, in terms of like, you know, the staffing and stuff at the time. So it did cause a lot of controversy. But nonetheless, I persisted. And ironically, I ended up the following day getting written up by my history teacher. Hmm. And the only ally I had throughout that time was my math teacher, who was a black woman. And when I went to her to show her the write-up papers, she was like, all right, listen, I'm coming with you. So this lady literally risked her job by marching down to the principal's office with me in solidarity with her hoodie on. And we wow. debated back and forth with the principal. And instead of suspending me, my principal sent me home to do my research and have my case ready for him the following day. So that's what I did. When I went home, I looked up my First Amendment rights. I looked up my rights as a middle school student in Georgia and the U.S., And then I came across the case Tinker versus Des Moines, which in short established the right for students to peacefully organize on school grounds. And um, that was the focal point of my argument the following morning. So right back again, my teacher and I were in the principal's office going back and forth with the principal. And once I brought up Tinker versus Des Moines, he was so shocked. He was like, how the heck do you know about that at 12 years old? And I'm like, well, you told me to do my research. So that's what I did. (laughs) And I won the case. And by the time we got out of his office, it was lunchtime. So when we went to the cafeteria, literally every single student in there had their hoodies on with the same exact message taped to their back. And my teacher and I just cried. And at that moment, I knew that being an activist and organizer was my calling. And I haven't stopped since. And it was shocking to me at that time because I grew up very bullied. So I didn't think that I'd have that much of an impact on my peers. But that just goes to show, like, it doesn't matter who you are, where you come from. You're capable, more than capable of effectuating change. So I haven't stopped since. It's interesting because at least from from that story, it seems like activism takes many forms. It shapeshifts. Yeah. And so Mm -hmm. activism in in a more formal sense, a lot of times people think of activism as, as marching on the street. Um, or, or doing something in terms of like, like politically going into a political office to be an activist. Um, but in your case, it, you used what you had as one of your resources, education, your, your school, your local community. And I think uh, one thing which people can take away from your story is that you can actualize change at a community level. It's not. Needed. Yes. Yes. Uh, community organizing is so important. And I always tell people there's not one way to be an activist or organizer. Um, There's so many ways you can contribute. Like if you're a chef, like, listen, you can cook some food and bring us it to the, bring (laughs) us some food on the front lines because we'd be hungry. Like it's it's hot out there. 
it's exhausting. So like literally when I was on the front lines in Minnesota, we had chefs out there grilling for us, like, and giving protesters food, you know, that's real. Like if you sing rap, like do that at a protest, like that will keep us motivated. Like there's just so many different ways that you can contribute to the movement. And it doesn't always have to be on the front lines. And if you can't be on the front lines, that does not make your work any less valid mm. because we're still in the middle of a pandemic. And it's important to recognize that not everyone is able-bodied and able to be on the front lines every single day, like able-bodied people. Mm -hmm. So however you contribute, just make sure you have strategy behind it and you're amplifying the voices that are impacted by these issues. I really appreciate that note because I think there's a dialogue going on right now about what the term activist looks like. And I'd love if you, mm -hmm. could, you could kind of give your take on especially how information is disseminated nowadays with the generation that listens to, to this podcast, primarily Gen Zers, is social media. So what role do you think social media is slash should be playing in the movement? Social media plays an integral role in activism right now in the digital age. And as a young Black organizer that's been doing this work and like for a long time, like Instagram has played a really large role in amplifying the work I do and getting it out there. Uh, before this uh, uprising happened and my platform really, really took off, I had about 7,500 followers. Like I was nearing the 8K mark. And uh, like, you know, once this uprising started, I'm like, this is so hard to organize with only like 7,000 followers because yeah. mm -hmm. everyone knows that if you don't have 10K plus followers or if you're not verified, then you can't use the swipe up feature. And the swipe up feature is so important to activists like me because then we can like post different actions that you can support, uh, work that we're amplifying petitions, ways that you can donate. So it makes our lives so much easier so I was just like asking the community, like, can y'all support me? Like, you know, different influencers help like shout me out to get me to 10K. Like now, um, like, you know, since I've been viral, like at least three different times, like my platform is like catapulted and I'm verified now. But like, I'm just like, you know, Instagram is definitely important for me. You know, I use Twitter and stuff, but Instagram is like my main platform. So what I use to act, um, activate people all around the world for change. And that's what a lot of black organizers do with social media right now. So it's definitely important. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I've noticed a ton, um, especially a lot of voices being highlighted in this time in, in such a great way, simply because just like you were saying, the stories feature is so potent in terms of yes, sharing voices. It, it really is. The one reservation that I kind of have with social media is in a grand scheme, like macro level position um, in terms of structures and how they've integrated kind of into our day to day life. My concern with using social media in these ends is that in some sense, it's also lining the pockets of corporate elites mm -hmm. in Silicon Valley. When you how do you weigh kind of the pros and cons of activity on platforms, knowing that the people who own it might actually just be the problem? So right now, like, and that that's a real concern for organizers all across the country. But like, we're basically using what we have right now. Like, you know, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, these are the resources that we have at our fingertips right now that would most that would amplify the work as quickly and, and as effectively as possible. 
Um, and our community has done a phenomenal job of holding Instagram accountable. Instagram has listened to what we've been saying as black activists and organizers and really just taken the time out to hear us out. So there's always more work to be done, of course. And like when I was on the front lines in Minneapolis, like I was so frustrated with Instagram because I'm like, you guys are literally freaking shadow banning me. Like I'm trying to post like you can, like if you go on my page, there's a video there while I'm in Minneapolis being tear gassed. I'm like, I'm trying to go live and post my story about what's going on. And it's literally saying actions blocked. Like that's insane. So like I reported all this to Instagram and some Instagram team members reached out to me and like they helped me with everything, but that was just like incredibly frustrating. So I'm really glad that the black community came together to hold them accountable because if we didn't do that, then I don't know how much would have changed right now in terms of how we organize on social media. Um, so it's definitely is important for all of us to like continue to hold Instagram accountable and um, eventually move to spaces where we can create platforms for us. And that's what a lot of people are doing right now. Like. So I'm really excited to see it. But yeah, like that, those, that's my take on it. Like overall, we're like using what we have at our fingertips that would affect if we organize people around the world. And, you know, as we know, like Instagram is one of the largest social media platforms in the world. And like, that's what helps galvanize people. So. Agreed. A hundred percent. I, it's, it's interesting from their perspective. I've always been curious as to why they shadow ban or why they block. I don't necessarily know, especially in terms of social movements. It seems like a lot of times people are afraid of movements, um, which are uh, maybe out of the normal or out of what they typically see. For instance, Black Lives Matter, a lot of people, uh, I would say were aware, but they, they didn't know how prominent it was until um, this, this, the whole recent um, issues of shootings and, and police brutality and stuff like that. I, I don't even think I think what what's so interesting about this moment is to kind of neglect what Joey just said or <laughs> change what Joey just said. It's not it's this is not a new phenomenon. Yeah, it's not new. None of, none of this is new, but the information dissemination that's occurring is what's new and is what's so powerful because and especially a lot of us being home having it directly in our face seeing these horrific events is what's galvanizing so many young people in particular. And what I would kind of shift this into a little bit of a question to say, what what are you seeing now on the front grounds in terms of young people? Do you notice that the demographic is shifting far more there? Is it cross-generational? What what have you noticed? Um, So on the front lines right now, like I've de- I will definitely say it's been intergenerational, mm. but I'd also note and it's important to note that Gen Z has really been carrying this yeah. movement right now. Like there's tons of young, I've seen it, people as young as five years old on the front lines. I've seen like little wow. two year olds like out there marching, holding their signs with their parents and stuff. And it's like, you know, at this, it's admirable and it brings tears of joy to my eyes, but it also brings tears of sadness because black children are literally having their childhood snatched away from them right now because of the climate that we're in and you know it's nice to see you know parents educating their kids on what's going on right now and it's important but they shouldn't have to be out there they should be able to live the life of a child like you know they shouldn't have to risk their lives going outside on the front lines 
you know, because it's dangerous out there. Like police are shooting us. Police are tear gassing us. They're using every single tactic in the book to try to stop this movement. And it's not necessarily safe to have kids out there all the time. So it's, it is disheartening in the same, uh, in the same sentiments. But um, what I will say is like, I'm extremely proud of Generation Z and black young organizers specifically for really taking the charge and taking the lead because we can't wait anymore. Like at this point, we're in the fight for our lives and we've been surviving for generations and we're tired of just surviving. We want to live and breathe. I'm tired of putting, I can't breathe t-shirts on. Mm -hmm. You feel me? So it's, 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 I would say like on the front lines right now, Gen Z, like I said, is really carrying this movement. And historically speaking, like young people have carried every social movement. So this is nothing new, but I'm glad that Gen Z is starting to receive the credit that is long overdue. Some people are arguing um, that they get feed fatigue from the recent Black Lives Matter protests. They don't want to go on social media anymore. Or the the news for that. Yeah, yeah, it's it's kind of repulsive. Yeah, it is kind of irritating. But what what, what would you say to somebody if they were right here? What would you tell them? Yeah, like, and I saw the other one, like, ally fatigue. (laughs) What does that even mean? Yeah, what does that mean? Like, what is that? That's what I'm saying. Like, y'all really go on these on these social media platforms and say anything. Like, mm-hmm. what does that even mean? Like, feed fatigue. Do you know how much privilege it is to even utter those words mm-hmm. and really try to create a whole thing of it out of it? Like, do you know how exhausting it is to be black in this country every single day? Like, I am proud of my skin. I love being black and I wouldn't trade it for the world. But it's dangerous and it's, and it's exhausting. Like you you got into the movement like a month ago. Like to the white people that's saying all this like okay, you have been on the front lines for like a month or two. I've been doing this for 8 years since yeah. I was a kid. Yeah. Right? And black people every single day we have to live with the realities of being black in this country and not just in this country but in this world. If you decide to kick your protest shoes off tomorrow and said you didn't want to be a part of this movement anymore, you can do that. And you won't really suffer any major repercussions. But we as black people don't have the luxury to sit back and do nothing and just log out of our social medias and not be active in the current climate right now. We don't have that luxury. So check your privilege is what I would say to them. And if you feel that way, don't even bother contributing to the movement because you're doing more harm than good. That's a powerful statement. What would, to, to kind of continue this conversation, you've really been on the front lines and seeing kind of the worst of our country. I, yeah. I, I read an article recently um, in researching for this, you were at Charlottesville where, mm-hmm. where things were really just in your face. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. How, what do you see in these people's eyes when you're confronted with them? Is it that much hatred in them? Or Is it they- fear? What, like, what is it? Man, I, I I would for sure say there's just like pure hatred in these people's eyes. And it's just like, I understand like the systems that are in place that enable that behavior. But at the same token, it's just like, why? Like you, like when you really think about it in the grand scheme of things, you literally hate me because of the color of my skin. Like we bleed the same blood. We have the same organs. Like we both have brains. We're both human beings. Like I don't, I don't get it. Like, it's just like literally simply because I'm a black person. That's why you hate me. 
and it's it's just it's it's exhausting and like when i look into their eyes a lot of them look lost brainwashed just hateful and it's yeah like in charlottesville i i was one of the youngest counter protesters on the front lines from start to finish and it was absolutely traumatic and like i was attacked by a white terrorist and he almost damaged my kidneys and that was like in the midst of the brawl that happened in front of UVA before the car plowed through the crowd. And um, I I got caught up in that. I wasn't brawling or anything. I was trying to get away from the fights that were breaking out, but I ended up getting hit uh, by this huge, bald, white guy. Um, but yeah, like, you know, as traumatic as Charlottesville was, it definitely motivated me, as crazy as it may sound. Like, it motivated me to do more because it showed me even more on a larger scale, how far we have not come with race relations in America. And this country likes to portray itself as this post-racial utopia. But Charlottesville is one of the perfect modern day examples that we have not come as far as we thought we have. Mm-hmm. A lot of activists are speaking out right now saying that racism isn't ingrained in us. It is taught. It's, it's learned through generations, maybe a parent or somebody's environment sort of culminated uh, racist sentiment. Through that same token of thought, what can we do on an everyday level to almost depolarize that sort of education and make it less, uh, basically just eradicate racism if it is at all possible in our day-to-day life? Okay, so I'm going to break that down really quickly. So I don't entirely agree with the sentiments that racism is taught. Um, That's actually extremely problematic um, because this is how our country has been miseducated, right? Mm -hmm. We are taught that racism is just on a person-to-person basis. Like, I don't like you because you're black or whatever color you may be. But that's just one spectrum. That's just one spectrum of racism. And what people often are describing as racism is prejudice. And everyone is capable of being prejudiced. But racism goes far beyond, I don't like you because of the color of your skin. This is something that is systemic. And even the word itself is self-explanatory. That's the whole irony behind this. Like when you break the word in half, race and ism, the suffix ism means system. Mm -hmm. So it's just like, it's infuriating to me that people really... And I understand that, you know, we've been miseducated as a people. But at the time, in a time like this, we have to start having these uncomfortable conversations about race, what racism actually is. And I've been saying this for years. And some people like to attack me, but it's the truth. Like, it's far beyond just the person-to-person thing. This is a systemic issue. And like, like I said, everyone can be prejudiced. But in order to be racist, you have to have that privilege plus power power and be able to disenfranchise a whole population of people, right? So for me as a black woman, and I'm hypothetically speaking, if I say that I hate all white people, the only thing that would do is hurt some white feelings. Mm -hmm. But white people, on the other hand, feeling that they are superior to us, to black people and other marginalized demographics in this country and world, it's affected us in every sector of society, whether it be jobs, education, resources like white supremacy has infiltrated every sector of our society 
And we have to be honest because if we're not honest about these types of conversations, then we're not going to go anywhere. And we're still going to keep going in this continuous cycle of race relations and tensions boiling over in this country. And then everybody wants to act shocked. And the analogy that I came up with to describe racism in this country is that racism is a gunshot wound that America keeps putting the bandaid on. Um, And, and, and that's, that's, that's what it is. Like, you know, because the gunshot wound is still bleeding out and we just keep putting band-aids on it and we really need to stitch it up. Mm -hmm. But in order to do that, we have to have the necessary tools. And one of the primary resources is education, educating people on these systems of oppression and how they can dismantle it. And white people come into the realization that they play a major role in dismantling white supremacy. And that starts with self-reflection and educating yourself. And black people cannot be your full-time teachers. We have our own lives and Google is too free and accessible to be willfully ignorant. Okay. So like, I'm willing to like, you know, do teachings, I do workshops, I do all of that, but you also have to take self-accountability and educate yourself as well. Yeah. To that point on institutional and systematic level, you've gone out and said that you want to become president in 2036. And I want to I want to mm-hmm. talk about that a little bit, because mm-hmm. I think it's an, an interesting thing to hold in dialectic with what you just said there. Mm-hmm. What still gives you faith in institutions and in systems to change so much so oh. that you want to run the country? That's a great question. Um, so, you know, of course, with the current climate, I am disappointed in America and disheartened and I'm directly affected by what's going on right now. But in the same breath, what gives me hope is the millions of people in this country that are on the right side of history. And when I am on the ground and I see the people every single day that are putting their bodies on the line for black liberation and justice, it literally brings tears to my eyes. Like after every protest, I just sit back And I just cry in like amazement, especially like right now, because you couldn't have convinced me three, four months ago that I see over 50,000 white folks in Europe marching for black people. Like you just couldn't have convinced me. And like when I see and when I see this here in the States, like how many people are actually stepping up to the plate, it gives me faith in this country. Like no matter what happens. I don't think there's anything that can make me lose all hope for the future of this nation. And, you know, running for president is a long-term goal. That's, you know, years from now. Mm-hmm. Um, but my political aspirations right now is like for local politics, running for office in my community um, in Brownsville, Brooklyn, like, you know, and I've done, I've been doing this work on the ground for years in Brownsville, Brooklyn. I'm definitely a community organizer that my community knows. <laughs> my community can speak for me and I work in the schools in my community. So um, overall, what I would say is, Ultimately, the power belongs in the people. Mm-hmm. And I emphasize people to recognize that elected officials aren't the only people that you should be counting on in terms of change. At the end of the day, they're there to serve you. That's why they're an elected official. But in this country, like we've created this culture of idolization when it comes to these politicians. And they just be acting like they Beyonce, like they're untouchable. And yep. I'm just like, 100%. you work for us. Like, you know, we can vote you out of that seat. And if you're running for office and the words that come out of your mouth don't align with your actual track record, you'll never get a chance to have that seat. And that's the type of culture that Gen Z is taking the charge on creating right now. So, yes, right now I'm a, a organizer and activist on the front lines, but I also believe in that 
um, legislative sector being in those rooms and at those tables because it's imperative that our voices are there and that the communities that these people are making decisions on need to be members from those communities. So that's why I'm going into that legislative sector. Yeah. One campaign that you're spearheading right now, <laughs> Joey's giving a little applause. That was beautiful. <laughs> One campaign that you're spearheading right now is the Vote 2000 campaign. Mm-hmm. And I think yes. it's so on point with what we need right now. But before before we really even get into that, I'm, I'd love if you could speak to why you think younger people don't find voting, for lack of a better word, sexy. Like we vote at such low rates, even though it affects us, I would argue more than the older folks who yeah, yeah, they yeah. will vote. Mm-hmm. So, so what, what's your kind of take on that and that disparity? Yeah. So I, and I, you know, I wouldn't say that because a lot of times the narrative is like young people don't care about voting or anything like that. And I, I would argue that isn't even true. What I would say is access yeah. to mm-hmm. those resources. That's, that's the primary problem. Why young people, people aren't turning out in the numbers that we need them to is because they don't have access to those civic resources. And especially in black and brown communities, excuse me, and disenfranchised communities. Um, And that's why I came up with the idea of Vote 2000, because I saw that need for access to civic education. And like in New York City, in our inner city public schools, I've been fighting for this for like over three years now to bring civics back into inner city schools, because That's not just a privilege to have access to education about how to function in a so-called democracy. That is a right. Yep. So um, that that's what I would say is the primary problem that young people are systemic, systemically disenfranchised on educating on being educated on how the civic and electoral processes of this country works. So that's the primary problem. It's it's fascinating because I don't even think I've had a civics like a formal civics. Exactly. Right. And it just gets (laughs) it just gets thrown in with like some level of history. But the obligation gets to be placed almost on the history teacher to do that kind of work, which I don't think should be misconstrued for the same thing. Um, Exactly. And it's it's like weird to see all this happen. But I kind of do have a prevailing thesis of it comes down to pure fact of people just want to keep their seats and Republicans yeah. in particular, there's no term subju- limits. Well, I mean, not. by subjugating young voices, it's undeniable that we're far more progressive than they would want us to be. So if they mm-hmm. remove our access, then hey, I keep my seat and my money and everything that comes along with it, which, exactly. which is frankly Spot just on. disgusting. But um, I, I guess yep. that's how it works. I would. Uh, the one thing I want to just add here in terms of the the voting process is to you in this campaign, how are you going about motivating young people to go out to vote? Yeah, so uh, the primary target to Vote 2000 is to educate uh, disenfranchised communities, black and brown communities on the civic and electoral processes of this country and get them registered to vote. And I came up with this idea in 2017 when I held a campus-wide voter registration drive at my alma mater, Nelson Mandela School for Social Justice, which is inside of the Boys and Girls High School campus, which I don't know if you guys know, but in New York City, the inner city schools have multiple schools in one building. Mm -hmm. So there was four schools in that. There's four schools in that campus. And um, I had to work really hard to get every single school on board. And long story short, eventually on that Friday, we had an influx of graduating seniors come down to the library to get registered to vote. And they had attitudes. They were like, why do we have to do this? We already voted for the president. 
And then when I heard somebody say that, a light bulb went, went off in my head. And I'm like, yo, like people really don't realize how important local politics are. Yep. Like, of course, like, you know, the president, he's like a figurine, but local politics is what really affects us every single day. So for example, we vote for the district attorney. And if you get involved in the criminal justice system, that person can literally determine whether or not you walk free. So I literally said to them, I'm like, listen, our ancestors and people that are still alive today have shed blood in order for us to have this right. And it's not just a privilege, it's a right that people have shed blood and gave their lives up behind. So for you not to exercise that right is a disservice to yourself and for the millions of people that have shed blood for this cause. Yeah. And when I said that, they were like, you know what, miss, you're right. And I'm like, miss, I'm younger than y'all. And they was like, what? <laughs> and then, yeah. So we, I ended up like motivating them. They were like, you know what, I'm gonna get registered to vote. And I got over a hundred plus graduating seniors registered to vote that day. And it's also important to know that I was getting people registered to vote in the projects in my community as well. So I'm doing it on the ground in my community and the projects that nobody wants to go to and also in my school. And I, after everything was over, I'm like, okay, how do I keep this momentum up? And that's how I came up with the idea of Vote 2000 because it's geared towards Gen Z. I'm a 2000 baby. And I felt like it's short, hashtagable, quick to remember and all that. And then in 2018, we partnered up with DoSomething.org and they just literally, they're my family. I love them so much because they gave me all the resources and tools that I needed. And in partnership with them and their voter reg, in efforts, we got over 100,000 young people registered to vote. And now we're gearing up again this summer uh, to roll everything out at the end of the summer and really like take off with this campaign. That's great. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's, it's also super important. And I'm glad people are spearheading campaigns around this topic because otherwise yeah. it's, it's just I, I, we should be blamed for the fact that we're not going out and voting and taking things as if politics doesn't affect us. But also yeah. but part of it is systemic in the sense that we exactly. we literally do not know. Like my biggest fear is, especially in this day and age with our president and certain Republicans, that they <laughs> that they have a propensity towards literally taking our voting rights away. Um, yeah. It's and, a lot of times on like college campuses, for instance, I've oh, heard yeah. a, a great case to be made that the reason why young people don't vote is because voting is so far away from college campuses. Yes. And I wouldn't even understand why people... Well, I do, but like from a human standpoint, I don't understand why people would not want us to exercise those types of rights, especially when, you know, they'll they'll say, oh, the founding fathers, they did such a great job at building our country. And, oh. then, and, and one of those, you know, obviously there are problems with those figures, but one of the things that they wanted us to do was to have access to vote, albeit it originally did not start like that. And the history of that is very, is not really that complicated in the sense that they were racist and slave owners and only wanted racist slave owners to be able to vote as well. But Mm -hmm. to kind of bring things full circle and and wrap up this conversation, where do we go from here? The, The news cycle is kind of moving on, unfortunately, but to be to be frank, I assume that this was kind of going to happen. We have very short attention spans, but how do we how do we keep the momentum going so we do finally see some sort of progress? Yeah, so the real work starts when the cameras are off. Yep. Like, and that's what I tell people every single day. And the message that I'm emphasizing to people right now more than ever is sacrifice. 
Black organizers all across this country have sacrificed life as they know it and comfortability. Like when I made the decision to go to Minneapolis last in May, it was in May at the end of May through June. I literally sacrificed life as I knew it. Like I was at my grandparents' house in North Carolina because of COVID and I go to Hampton University. So their house is close to Hampton. So when we had to evacuate, do the emergency evacuation, they were the closest people to get to. So that's where I was at mm -hmm. uh, for like two months. And um, I literally came up with the idea. I'm like, listen, I'm going to go out there because we'd already been working with organizers in Minneapolis before virtually and like helping them as much as we can. But like my team is like, we got to go out there because they need more help. So I'm like, damn, I'm in North Carolina. And I'm just like, Okay, I'm just going to go to my Instagram. I'm going to let them know I need help fundraising to get out there because plane tickets were really expensive. And by the grace of God, I was able to um, receive an influx of donations quickly to, so I could be able to buy my tickets and uh, for housing and food and stuff like that. But like I blocked my mom, my family, all of them on Instagram because once I put that fundraiser out there, I made up my mind and I didn't want anybody to try to talk me out of it. That's just the type of person I am. Um, and I called my mom when I landed in Minneapolis. She was like, oh, hey, Nepal, where are you? I was like, oh, yeah, I'm in Minnesota. She's like, what? What are you doing out there? <laughs> like, she literally freaked out on the phone. I'm just like, I I'm here. And, and ultimately, she calmed down and she recognizes that this is something that I've committed my life to and she supports me. So that's that's what she does. Like, she's literally been the most supportive mom ever throughout this entire journey. And um, I definitely couldn't do this without my support system. Um, so just overall, like, you know, I, I left North Carolina at four in the morning, got in a taxi and drove to Norfolk International and made my way to Minnesota and sacrificed damn near everything. I almost lost my life out there in Minnesota. And that's one of the videos that went viral on my Instagram because I caught it in real time when I was on Instagram live, when the police almost shot me and my unarmed team for no reason. Mm -hmm. Um, we were just looking for our car after 16 plus hours of protesting, mm -hmm. but it's like to people everywhere, what are you willing to sacrifice? And that's the question that I pose to everyone. And no one's saying that you have to be on the front lines doing like, you know, that work. But in order for change to be made, sacrifice has to be made. And you just have to ask yourselves, like, you know, am I willing to be uncomfortable for this day or this hour in order to propel this movement? Because if not, if you just want to sit in the comforts of your bed all day and do nothing, then nothing will change. Yeah. And we're not we're not going to shut up like black people were fed up. So, you know, you don't have I'll be telling people like you don't have to like me. You don't have to you don't have to do any of that. But you're going to respect me for one and two to the system. Like you're going to give us what we deserve and we're demanding it and we're not asking nicely. So that's that's what it is. You know, it's interesting. You're obviously your your mother's response was probably rational, given given that you were uh, in Minnesota and it's like. Yeah. It's a crazy time, obviously, but for for some of my friends, at least, they're trying to speak out on a local level and fight against racism and promote the Black Lives Matter movement. But a lot of times, the racism uh, and the polarization is ingrained in family ties. Yeah, some kids yeah. are kicked out of their house. Yeah, I have yep. because I have friends who've been kicked out as well. It's wild. Yep. And but what I what I will say though is the beautiful part of this moment they're is they're sacrificing though. I mean, well. well I mean, that's a very severe sacrifice, True. but even aside from their sacrifice, which I respect a hundred times, million times, but the the movement has spread to not just be something that's even concentrated in urban centers. We, we, live, yeah. we live out in the suburbs 
And literally, there were protests every single weekend around every town around There's one us. like last week. And yeah. I mean, that's so powerful, I think. Yeah. To just see. Yeah. Because suburbia in particular is one of those like locations that, whether explicitly racist or subtly racist, harbors a mm-hmm. lot of these beliefs and also tends to be very white. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. To, to see that just actualize on, just like you were saying previously with Europe, it's spreading it's spread out yeah. aside from just being concentrated. That's what makes me so hopeful about what's yeah. going on now. And honestly, just like to close off, like a lot of people ask and white people ask me, what can white allies do? And one of the most important things that white people can do to help this movement is educate themselves on the systems and institutions that are in place that disenfranchise black people in marginalized communities and how they benefit from it. And then go back into your white communities and educate other white people and have those conversations at the dinner table, have be a part of those uncomfortable conversations in educational realms. Uh, Because out of that uncomfortability comes productivity. And of course, you know, not every conversation is going to go in the way in which you intend, but there's going to be 10 more, 10 more yeses for those five no's you may receive. Mm -hmm. The work doesn't stop at a no or people not, some people not being receptive to what you're trying to say. And like, just overall, you're going to have to be comfortable with the fact that you're going to be uncomfortable in many situations and that comfortability, uncomfortability you may feel in that hour or day is what black people feel every single day times 10. So you have to walk into this movement with an open mind, open ears and an open heart mm-hmm. and educate yourself and you, then pass it along. You know, and a question which is always on my mind is, where is the education coming from? A lot of times uh, on social media, uh, people are saying, uh, educate yourself on X matter or on Y thing. Um, and a lot of times the education is skewed, though. Uh, college boards mm-hmm. under a lot of fire right now because of the AP US history exam, um, because people think that it's like a whitewash of history. Do you have any recommendations of where to educate yourself? Um, yes, uh, yes. Love that. One of my favorite questions. Um so, yeah, we definitely can't depend on the U.S. Department of Education for our education. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but what I will say, I'll give you guys a couple of book recommendations and um, a film. Like, I'm a huge bookworm. So what I would say, uh, first and foremost, uh, this book is called Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome. And it's by a world-renowned uh, researcher. And uh, her name is Dr. Joy DeGruy hope I pronounced her last name right. I'm pretty sure I did. Um, so Dr. Joy DeGruy, um, I ca- became familiar with her at 15 years old after I watched a YouTube lecture on post-traumatic slave syndrome. And she coined that term and she's written a whole book about it. So I implore all of you guys to read it. I just ordered the copy of an updated version. So I'm so happy to get into that. I would also say read the new Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, mm-hmm. who I'm also a fan of as well. And then I would really implore you guys to watch the 13th on Netflix, which is a film by the amazing Ava DuVernay. And it really gets into uh, systemic racism from an institutionalized level. And in 60 minutes, it educates you so much. Like I've watched it over five times now and I always learn something new. So those are three recommendations I would give you guys in terms of like starting to educate yourself and really uh, unpack everything that we've been brainwashed to believe in this country. Yeah, I can attest to to the latter two of your recommendations. 
Um, I read them when I was about a freshman in high school. Or I read uh, The New Jim Crow when I was about a freshman in high school and mm-hmm. an incredibly eye-opening experience. Both Joey and I have experience as debaters in high school. Um, and- yes, me too. Oh, for real? What type of, what type <laughs> yeah. of debate did you do? Um, so it was very basic. I wouldn't say that it was like anything probably on you guys' game because my school is very small and underfunded, but we would usually debate with other like local schools on like political topics or stuff like that. But it was very in the small scheme of things. Yeah. What did you guys do? So we, we did Lincoln Douglas debate and PF. Yeah. yeah PF oh, for see, like a... No, they, they don't have that in the hood, honey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I will say though, we, we had a, a, a quite a few success friends Academy from success has Academy. A lot of, yeah, yeah. That would, that they're, would die powerhouse. That. They were a powerhouse. Mm-hmm. Crazy. And they, yeah. they forwarded a lot of, uh, especially, Alexander, a- Angela Davis as well. Uh, both. Yes. I, I would recommend anything from Angela Davis for anyone who's listening as well. Yes. Angela Davis. Love her. Love them. I met them in 2017 or 2018. It was one wow. of those years. 2017 or 2018. I got to see them speak at Riverside and like meet them. Was Almost that, passed was that out. Like, yeah, yeah. I was gonna I was gonna say, was that like a you know, like meeting your idol type of moment? Cause... Yeah, no no no. Like I almost passed out. Oh my like, gosh. I to, like keep <laughs> I had to keep on composing. Like it took everything in me not to scream when I saw Angela <laughs> in the flesh. So yeah. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Well, I really appreciate this conversation and to roll the red carpet a little bit out for you, where can the people find you at this moment or support any of the causes that you're working on? Yeah, um, so you can find me on Instagram at newpaul underscore justice and Twitter, N-U-P-O-L underscore justice. Um, I'm most active on Instagram. That's where you see me every single day posting about new things I'm doing, new actions and things that you can support. Uh, so yeah, and then stay tuned for uh, Vote2000's relaunch, and I'm super, super excited for this. And thank you guys so much for having me on. This is one of the most... Uh, enlightening and like fun conversations I've had with podcasts because typically they're kind of boring for me because they just ask like the same repetitive questions. Yep. <laughs> so I really, yeah, I really do like you guys. You guys are cool. Thank oh, you. Listen, Thank I so really much. appreciate that. I, I tried doing a little bit of research into some of the podcasts you've been on. So I definitely tried to steer away from things you've been asked. So yeah, <laughs> thanks. And you actually did your research because I, there was one interview I had and they asked me like, was the 15,000 plus person march i organized my first march and i'm like are you oh, no. serious right now like it doesn't like even I've take that much like, for it's so yeah. it's so easy to do your research like you just look up your name and you read a few articles and you kind of get the gist like it's yeah not that hard. yeah so thank you guys so so much of course well it's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you um and i really do hope people reach out start following you and see all of the work that you're doing because it's truly incredible to see and I do hope that you become our president in 2036. <laughs> because if this <laughs> conversation so is any indication of what you would do for our country, I am I, I would be a proud supporter. So you have my vote. Oh, <laughs> <thanks>. <laughs> you got I it. look forward to staying connected with you guys. You guys shoot me a DM with your number and all that stuff. 100%. 100%. You got it. You got it. Okay. Bye, right. guys. See you. As always, is the DWD podcast. Thank you again for listening in. She just left, but... Uh, Our information is in the description, everything that you need, everything DWD down there. As always, Joey, Asher, peace. Let's get it. (laughs) Let's get it.